Hello everyone, it's December 15th, 2020. Well, a starship made a 12 and a half kilometer hop. It didn't quite stick the landing, but whatever. So we're gonna pick through the wreckage and give our best analysis and first impressions. I gotta say, it was impressive. So let's get to it and lift off. And we've cleared the tower. Welcome to episode 289 of the Orbital Mechanics Podcast. I'm David. I'm Ben. I'm Dennis. Well, we got a SpaceX launch coming up uh, in the middle of, of the show, so we'll be keeping an eye on that, but not really watching it. It's just a Falcon 9. If it was a Falcon Heavy, I, I would be like, okay, let's let's stop and watch. But yeah, <laughs> there's there's not many more Falcon Heavies left, right? I mean, there's only going to be well, there's there's a couple scheduled flights, and then past that, I don't know if they have anything down because of what we'll be talking about shortly. <laughs> I think at least that's kind of what. Uh, yeah. Yeah, we'll we'll see. You're saying uh, super heavy is likely to take over its its launches. I mean, that seems to be what a lot of you know the speculation is. Is that Falcon Heavy just fits this weird niche that no one really needs? It's like if you need something that a Falcon Nine can't do, ideally within a couple of years, you know, you'll just have you know Starship Heavy overboard at whatever it's called. Yeah, yeah. No, I mean, I, mean, I, don't, I don't know, know they, but they've got a decent number of launches on the on the books. They've got um, two. Um, oh, actually three U.S. Space Force launches, uh, Viasat, Psyche. Uh, Psyche. Yeah, exactly. Wow. So, you know, I, I mean, it's, it's a decent number on there, but you know, who knows? Those, those might get, might get switched over. Um, I guess we should also, uh, talk about, um, SpaceX's hundredth successful Falcon 9 launch that happened this week. Uh, uh, CRS, what, 23? Uh, uh, tw- uh, sorry, 21. 20. That wasn't the, um, the seventh, launch of that core was it was it that flight i know that they launched a core seven times really i didn't i did not know that actually that's impressive oh so it was uh it was starlink 15 that was the seventh launch um but uh this launch uh xs xm7 will be the seventh okay. launch of this core as well so that wow. i mean that is that is some history <laughs> isn't it mm-hmm. that is impressive um, yeah i mean c- considering that when we first started seeing, um, you know, the initial reflights, we we're like, yeah, you know, they're, they're saying they can get up to 10 flights out of these things, you know, out of the, uh, uh, fuller thrust or fullest thrust, whatever it was before, uh, block five. And, and we're kind of like, yeah, you know, we'll, we'll see. <laughs> mm-hmm. oh, okay. So, uh, Mike in the chat says, uh, Starlink 15 was the hundredth overall launch, including failures. And since we've only seen what, uh, I guess total failures. It's only been what two or three, so they're they're not far from their hundredth hundredth uh, successful Falcon Nine launch. But anyway, so so we were you know going yeah we'll we'll see if they ever get up to ten launches with this thing. You know it's it's not going to be the hundred reuses that you know that we're but you know ten ten would be nice and and we're rapidly approaching cores with ten mm-hmm. flights on them, um, and each. Each time I think I see uh, Elon Musk somewhere or other saying, yeah, you know, it's it's X number of launches on this vehicle. So, you know, there's there's higher risk, but we'll see what happens. And, uh, you know, they're they've got customers who are happy to accept that that supposedly higher risk. You know, I guess it I guess we at this point, we don't really know if it's higher risk or lower risk because they're flight proven. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we just don't have enough data. Um, you got to start seeing. Uh, cores fail because of the number of launches that they have before you can really say say for absolute sure. Mm-hmm. But, you know. Yeah, I mean, that's an interesting way of looking at it. But I think it does speak to the confidence of their customers that the XFM one or XSM 
that one's going to be a seven um, a seven a, three use. Yeah, seven three use. Yeah, and that's pretty impressive because um you know like if they're flying Starlink then whatever that's you know SpaceX's own stuff so they're not going to destroy someone else's you know expensive satellite. But uh, this is interesting that Sirius will go with them that they're fine with it. Well, I was just going to say, Colin, the chat has a uh, a really good one liner here. We don't know where we are in the bathtub curve. Um, and so just to remind anybody who hasn't looked at the bathtub curve in a while, you sort of have this reliability, th- this change in reliability over the lifetime of any given thing. And, you know, things tend to have um, low reliability at the beginning of their life due to uh, burn in or infant mortality, you know, whatever you want to call it. And then you have... Um, this, this period of, of low failures, right? It has to be low failures, not high reliability, uh, to make it look like a bathtub, but you have this period of, of low failures. And with, uh, vehicle reusability, you actually have, if you're looking at the cost per launch, you get that slope coming down as you mm-hmm. get, uh, amortization, um, taking over. And then at the, the end, you get the curve, uh, of failure rate going back up due to age and, and wear and all that. Um, and so we don't we don't know where we are. Um, are we seeing high reliability? Uh, we're definitely seeing uh, lower costs per launch, you know. Oh, and uh, Mike points out this is the first non-Starlink fairing reuse. That's hmm. really cool. That that's a that's a big reuse uh, feature that I, I didn't see coming. I, I don't know about you guys, but I just always assumed that we'd be ditching those into the ocean when, you know, the, compared to the second stage, certainly they're <laughs> much much yeah. easier to to reuse or to recover anyway. Well, I mean, if they can recover them, then why not reuse them? But that was mm-hmm. like the big thing is yeah. like, can they recover them? And then yeah. they got pretty good at it. So, uh, and we we might. See see a, a live stream of, of the fairing recovery this time around. We'll see. They've, they've done it before. Very, very cool. Good, good job, SpaceX. <laughs> so in this SpaceX heavy episode, we're going to talk about serial number eight. Yeah, I, I saw it spelled Snate, S-N-A-T-E on this on NSF forums. <laughs> I like I like Snate. Snate. And I guess the next one will be Snine. And it's harder to say. <laughs> so so did you guys watch this live? Because I, I wasn't able to get to it live, but I watched it like an hour after the flight. Basically same as you, shortly after. Mm. I watched it probably closer. I still didn't catch it live, but I, I was checking and checking, checking, and I was checking the previous day and I was like, you know, because I didn't want to just keep watching because they kept on delaying it and everything, so I would just check back periodically. And wouldn't you know it, I missed it, but I mean, not by much. So it was probably like... 10 minutes or something after mm. the actual launch but uh so pretty much like you know close to real time well so that's a good that's a good segue to talk about delays so it was delayed two or three times i think just two i don't remember okay but yeah one of the delays they actually uh had an aborted um raptor startup um the raptor one of the raptor engines i think didn't get up to uh the correct chamber pressure uh, quickly enough, and so they they actually aborted it, and and I don't think we know too much uh, about that abort. There there'll be a link in the show notes to uh, Scott Manley's discussion video, um, and he talked about the aborts in a little more detail. I can't remember if he had a, a good reason for the shutdown, and then the other one was just like weather or something. Um, so so not a bad track record at all. What what's really fascinating is in the past when we've seen these flight tests, it's pretty much the latest and greatest thing flying. Um, but right now, um, Snate 
actually has a bunch of brothers and sisters. Uh, SN9 had some sort of issue. I've seen photos of it like leaning sideways. Um, I think it had a, a, a pad, uh, like a stand test. Is that the one that tipped over in the high bay? Because one of them did. Uh, right, right, right. Yeah, that was, uh, that was SN9. And I can't remember if it tipped over in the high bay due to wind or something, or if it was a, a pad test that went bad. But SN9 isn't even the latest one. I think they're up to SN14 in the yeah. works. Like they're they're still being built. But there, there's this great photo of of all these guys uh, sitting outside with like tarps uh, over the nose where the nose cone would be, just hanging around, getting ready to go. Um, it, it's quite a production line they've got going it's and the reason i bring all this up is because we're really seeing spacex do their fail early fail often philosophy mm-hmm. uh just push to the maximum with uh with with spaceship um it, it's really crazy um to see what a company who doesn't have i guess, i guess fear of failure right like so many other vehicles you you don't want to launch them until you have a reasonable certainty of flying a, a successful flight because you've got customers who are watching and every failure that you have even if you announce beforehand hey this is probably going to be a failure um it, it still kind of erodes uh your your standing with with your customers and I don't, I don't know what the, what the deal is here. Like, I'd love to hear what you guys think. Um, but Starship, um, doesn't have any customers on the book. I don't think you can, uh, you can count, uh, a potential, um, Artemis HLS. bid. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. As, as a customer. But, but they don't have any customers on the books, but they do eventually want to sell to, you know, commercial customers. But, but I guess th- this must just be a, a byproduct of how, how focused, how, how laser focused they are on, on going to Mars, right? I think that they'll sell flights. I mean, like maybe not to Mars, but you know, their customers have confidence because this is what SpaceX has always done. And I think that if you do fail early, then it's not so bad to fail often, you know, because I think that people understand that that's just how they do this, you know, it's not like they've been developing this for, 10 years and this is their first flight and it has to be a good one. Well, that's not what they do. You know, like, you know, we've seen them test incrementally. And so I think that everyone, you know, and plus it's just kind of fun. Plus SpaceX is already, like I said, they've already demonstrated that they can build reliable vehicles because they already have Falcon 9. So I don't think that anyone's too worried. Although like maybe they should be at first because this is a very ambitious vehicle, but they'll figure it out. I mean, well, and that's, that's the thing is like, it's an ambitious vehicle, but it's, it's not like, insane <laughs> like yeah they they have shown so many solid steps along the way um and, and you know most recently this uh um this high altitude test it, it was super impressive so ahead of time we we knew some of spacex's goals uh for this flight they uh, there's actually a, a link uh in the show notes to an elon tweet um, we knew that they were uh, aiming for a 10,000 foot altitude. We knew that they were flying three Raptors. That wasn't a real mystery. And then Elon stated three goals that they were really um, hoping to test using the body flaps for aerodynamic control, transitioning from the main tanks to the header tanks, uh, and then also performing the landing flip, which literally has never been done as far as I know. <laughs> As far as I know, nobody has ever belly flopped into the atmosphere. And that 
was in- incredibly impressive um, to, to see that happen. And then uh, Elon tweeted that they accomplished their four main goals. Um, he said that just getting to Apoapsis would have been exciting, but the fact that they were able to push all the way through to the landing flip um, was really fantastic. And uh, uh, spoiler alert, the, the vehicle was destroyed, um, but they got good data and they learned uh, the lessons that they were hoping to learn. And it sounds like they learned some extra lessons as well. So that's really fantastic. So one, actually one question real quick, because um, I failed to figure this out, look it up here. It was initially supposed to go up to 15 kilometers, right? So why was it 12 and a half? Well, so I, this is something they could have predicted ahead of time. Um, but I wonder if it is if it comes down to flying the three Raptors. So this flight didn't have uh, full propellant tanks, um, which we know for certain, even though SpaceX hasn't hasn't said it, but the ice buildup on the side of the body shows you how much... Uh, how much propellant is loaded. Mm-hmm. And so they, they can't fly with full tanks, I believe, because they only have three Raptors and there's just not enough thrust. So I wonder if they brought that down as they were dialing in how much thrust they were going to push the Raptors to or what throttle level they were going to push the Raptors to um, and kind of dialing in some of those those uh, thrust to weight ratio relationships. So Mike in the chat points out that it uh, it had been scheduled for 20 kilometers or, you know, that was what they were targeting. Then it was reduced to 15 kilometers and then most recently to 12 and a half because of high altitude winds. So that would explain why that, you know, most recent reduction uh, was really just because of the weather. Uh, Elon talks a big game about, you know, being excited about small milestones, but it sounds like they, they did want to be able to go a little farther then, huh? Okay, so uh, yeah, we already gave you the spoiler alert. The landing was honestly shockingly good, um, and, and uh, we'll we'll talk about what surprised me about this flight. But let's talk about a little bit of facts just real quick. Elon tweeted that the fuel header tank uh, had lower than expected pressure, and so they they ended up touching down slightly too fast. We can talk more about the causation chain that happened here in, in a little bit, but they, uh, they touched down just slightly too fast. And, uh, I, I think, I think I saw somebody do a, a velocity analysis, uh, from the video, but I mean, it, it, this thing is the size of a building. So I guess it, it's going to look like it's moving slower than it actually is, but it, it wasn't that much extra speed. I mean, they almost did it. And not only that, but they, um, they were technically on the landing pad <laughs> when they impacted. To me, it did look kind of, I mean, like I could just look at it and tell it was moving too fast because like you said, it, like it is big. And when you take that into consideration, cause it's what 13 stories high or something yeah. like mm-hmm. that's huge. And yeah. it just, I, I was like, well, just imagine those, you know, those tiny little legs coming out, like they're not going to be able to handle that like it's going to have to really come to a just about a standstill when it touches down not quite but i feel like it, it has even less room to play with than like you know a falcon 9 coming down and that i could be wrong but it just seems like that because it doesn't have those you know large legs that come out and and i would imagine provide some flexibility but i don't know if you know how much flexibility a falcon 9 actually has upon impact except that it does have the crush core and so maybe these have that too they do have that the the legs do have crush core right now We'll, we'll see in the, in the future, I would expect them to be hydraulically actuated or something like that so that they, uh, they don't have consumable parts or as few consumable parts as possible. So when, when you guys watched this, um, and, and all three of us watched it after the fact, but when you watched it, 
Like, what were your expectations going in? Because, like, when I watched it, I was I was terrified at the progressive shutdown uh, as they got up to the top of their arc. Yep, I I, I didn't think that was by design either, because it because you saw them kind of do kind of a uh, a seemingly kind of frantic gimbling uh-huh. before they would cut off uh, one by one. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of what I was thinking too. I wasn't sure. I mean, I was thinking like maybe this was supposed to happen, but I didn't know. So what what really fascinated me about that gimbling? is uh, there's an engine in Kerbal Space Program. I don't remember which one it is, but it's the one that's supposed to replicate uh, the SSME, uh, the RS-25. And it has um, this this wild gimbal range. I mean, it's just this huge gimbal range, and it's there so that you can build um, space planes and fly them in the easy, fun fashion that KSP uh, is known for. And um, the gimbling that we saw from the outside of the vehicle, seeing those thrust plumes with the shock diamonds, seeing those things flail about like a, like a rag doll, uh, <laughs> like the legs of a rag doll. It, it felt like I was watching Kerbal Space Program. And so my brain goes, that's bad. That's unexpected. That shouldn't happen. <laughs> and it turns out it's okay. <laughs> so two things that I wanted to point out about the gimbling. First, the, the engine that's shutting down, as that shutdown sequence closes out, you get residual thrust. You get little kicks and pops and uneven thrust. And so it's really interesting. If you watch, I believe you can see those things gimbal to the outside of their range while they're throttling down so that when they do get those pops, uh, they're not going through the center of mass of the vehicle. And then second, when you have one engine shut down, the other two engines do flail around and they're just balancing the vehicle. I mean, if you, if you look at the vehicle itself, um, it doesn't move at all. I mean, its mm. attitude is incredibly stable. Um, of course, there is a little bit of a tilt as the, um, the thrust vector gets offset from the center of the vehicle as, as you have engine shut down. But I mean, that gimbling is, is clearly, uh, a requirement if you want a stable attitude. The amount of control that they exhibited was honestly shocking. I, I was very, very surprised at how well that vehicle handles. Yeah. It looked cool. I mean, the whole time, I believe even as it was translating, it was, you know, still like you could see them moving, not as much as when it was landing, but still there was like constant movement, but the thing looked rock solid. Um, I just thought it just looked so neat that you could see that. And I'm thinking the whole time, like, how quickly do these things move or how how quickly can they? Because they're, you know, mm-hmm. these big engines. And so yeah. I kind of, that's like my first thought is like, what kind of machinery controls these things? You know, like, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, it would be interesting to know more about just like exactly how the gimbals work. You know, I, I'm assuming that it's pneumatic just because they need a lot of, a lot of torque, but the body flaps are actually actuated electronically, um, which is insane. I mean, they must have like, a couple of Tesla motors inside of them. But, uh, so, so I wouldn't be surprised if they used, um, electronic TVC actuation, but it, it doesn't seem super reasonable to me. So the, the progressive shutdown approaching the, the top of the arc was really startling. Um, <laughs> and I, I thought for sure, sh- I, I think we all three thought that it, that it was, the end of the flight. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. and then pitching over and, and starting the descent. Uh, I was really surprised at how little they use the cold gas thrusters. Like it, it was, it was really cool. They, they didn't really need to use them that much. Those, 
body flaps really did their job. And um, they not only controlled their, or they not only stabilized their attitude, but if you notice, they actually nosed up a little bit so that they could glide back after translating out over the ocean. I think it was nose down, right? Oh, sure, sure, sure. Yeah, yeah, you're right. Uh, uh, nose down as opposed to just flat so that they get um, a, a glide angle. Yeah. But as I'm rewatching it, I mean, I do see the cold gas thrusters firing. Not, I guess, you know, not a lot, but I don't know what would be considered a lot because this is something I've never seen before. Um, but they do fire off the nose a bit. But yeah, once it reaches that stable state there, it, uh, yeah, you don't see much. It just kind of falls. Like, yeah. To me, it looked like they used the cold gas thrusters to get the nose down. Yeah. And then after that, they didn't really do which, which makes sense because those body flaps, um, so, sort of like airfoils on, on an actual, um, airplane. You, you, they're useless if they're in a stall and pointed straight up. Like, I don't know if it counts as a stall, but it, it's the equivalent, right? You gotta get them presented be, yeah. properly. Yeah. That, it makes sense that that's when you'd want to use up that resources to get your nose down and then. And it did, David, like you said, it does look like they fire them a little bit, but it's, it's really minimal. And I'm assuming that now that they've characterized them a little bit better, they can, they can use them even less. Very dramatic flight. Well, right. The, so the, the drama really reached a peak when they came in for that, for that landing flip. Watching that happen, A, I don't know if I want to be sitting in that vehicle when it does a flip. <laughs> <laughs> you say that, but and you're referring to the G loads or like the rotational speed, mm -hmm. right? I'm just imagining being pressed down into mm -hmm. my seat as the rotation starts, and then pressed upwards into my straps as the <laughs> as the flip ends. But I mean, if you look at it, it's mostly the bottom that swings under. So really, you're not getting too much rotation at the top. Like most of that's going to be towards the bottom of the vehicle because the top doesn't move too much. You know what I mean? Like, I mean, you know, a little bit. Well, and so that that's that's my second point is, A, I'm not sure I want to be in it. Second, I'm or, uh, A, I don't want to be in it. B, I'm pretty sure that those engines are experiencing the most extreme environment that any engine has ever experienced, specifically, you know, in this rotation. I don't think we've ever started up an engine while subjecting it to that much um, yeah. that much rotation. The first engine obviously gets an easy startup, but then the second and third, they're having to start up while being swung around like that. Or maybe it's just the second. It's hard to tell if the third engine was supposed to start after the flip has completed or not. But, you know, we're, we're seeing very unique, very unique. I, I hate <laughs> that pair because it's either unique or it's not unique. You can't qualify. Mm. <laughs> but, but we're seeing these, these unique engines that, you know, full, full staged, uh, flow is just um, not a common thing. And, you know, they're very high performance engines. And then on top of that, we're not treating them like babies. They, they're not getting babied. Really, really impressive. I, I Once I got over the surprise uh, and shock of this launch and, and started thinking about it more and reading some analysis, I, I'm just more and more impressed that they were able to get as far as they did. So I'm sure you saw that shot from the ground as that, you know, like as it was coming down. That was really cool looking, I have to say. I don't know. There was, I think there was some kind of a filter on the camera that kind of made the sky darker. And, and I guess that's just so that the engine wouldn't, you know, like wash out the screen. But it looked so neat to watch. 
I mean, like you saw the bottom of this rocket doing its thing in real time because they, it just had that perfect angle. And it, it looked literally to me, it looked unreal. Like, I don't know, like I thought it was a simulation, but that was actual yeah. real footage mm-hmm. from the ground. Um, yeah, and I just works. loved looking at that. I've seen it. Yeah. I've like watched that like 10 or 15 mm-hmm. times. It just looks so cool. It does look like CGI. At yeah. First. I mean, not even at first the whole time. It does. <laughs> or something out of a movie. I don't know. I guess it just doesn't look like that could really happen. You know, it- I, I think the, the main thing that makes that feel unreal. I mean, there's no question. This is an incredible video, but I think the main thing that makes it look so unreal is the telephoto lens, which gives it an, an otherworldly kind of mm. uh, motion. That could be. Yeah. Telephoto lenses kind of do that, huh? Yeah. And, uh, those two engines that are on are just doing a little dance there. It's just uh, <laughs> interesting to watch. It, it, it looks it looks like ballet. I mean, mm-hmm. what what's that ballet move where you Pure jump what? up and no no no? It's where you jump and then wiggle <laughs> your feet so you put one in front of the other and then swap them back and forth. It's like a an entree shot, I think. All right, so I think we need to talk about the failure now. When I saw um, those engines starting up. Yeah, I should have been prepared for it because I had just seen them shut down in a staggered fashion and seeing them start up in a staggered fashion kind of threw me. But I did notice right off the bat that the first engines to shut down were the first engines to start back up. So that calmed my concerns a little bit. Uh, probably, <laughs> probably not enough. So did you all forget, like I did, that Raptor doesn't use T-Teb for ignition? Because I, I thought the grain was absolutely those vehicles falling apart and T-Teb flowing into the combustion chamber. So I actually didn't know, and I, and I remember thinking to myself, it could be T-Teb, but I don't know if it uses T-Teb. And if not, and it turns out I was actually right, I was thinking it's probably something copper because copper burns grain. So I had those two thoughts, but I wasn't sure until like later on when I had you know, read more about it. Well, excellent job with that one. <laughs> I, yeah. I, I had no question. Question in my mind that it was T-Tab. I, I didn't even question that they uh, weren't weren't flying with T-Tab. I was primed uh, to think it was copper too because my buddy. Uh, the, the reason I missed it, or I missed it, but then my buddy Sammer actually called me uh, excitedly to tell me, like, you know, did you watch it? Did you watch it? And so uh, he was already talking about, you know, mm-hmm. the copper and the green. So he kind of gave me a little bit of a, a heads up to expect that. So I, I didn't really form my own opinion on it. <laughs> yeah. So we don't know why the. Fuel header tank, the methane header tank, suffered low pressure on landing. I am really interested to see um, what the... I'm assuming it's going to be community analysis, unless um, somebody asks Elon at the right minute when he's uh, uh, in a talkative <laughs> mood. But yeah, you, you have uh, under pressure on your fuel means that you have an oxygen-rich environment in the engine. And when there's no fuel uh, to burn, uh, the engine is very polite and steps up and volunteers to burn itself. And so that's where the um, where the copper is coming from. And yeah, Ben Hallard in the chat reminds us it's called engine rich combustion. Uh, jokingly, it's not a not a technical term, but yeah, engine rich combustion is just one of my favorite. Uh, terms along with rud which i think some ingenious person came up with these have now become semi-official terms that i hear all the time <laughs> yeah uh, uh rapid unplanned disassembly is a ksp term i believe or, or at least it was popularized by uh by ksp and uh colin in the chat says um they remember uh earlier raptor tests like stand tests i i believe where there was a little bit of green uh and yeah actually i i now that you say that that sounds very familiar and i, I I totally uh, 
I totally dropped that out of my memory. So the green, yeah, I understand that the raptors have like milled copper channels within the bell. And so that might be where it's coming from. Probably is it's trying to cool the engine bell and it's, you know, picking up copper along the way. Yeah, there's, um, no, I, I, I believe it's burned through from the inside out uh, or from the, from the inside of the bell towards the outside of the bell, not from the channels uh, working their way outward to the uh, to the skin. But, but there's something interesting about the engine bell that I can't remember, um, because it is copper and the way that they build in those channels, uh, you, you said it was milled and there's something mm -hmm. like it's, it's milled copper as opposed to brazed or welded right, tubes. Yeah. And I think that's the, the interesting bit there. So, you know, it, it kind of a bummer that, <laughs> that we ended up eating into some of that, but I guess, uh, I guess it wasn't gonna, there wasn't going to be a lot of engine bell material to <laughs> to have afterwards anyway. And then uh, there were a couple of numbers I wanted to read off. Um, just looking at uh, NSF forums, um, people have done, what do they call it? Um, they, they basically do quick image analysis to estimate lengths and distances and speeds. And they, they have a name for it. It's like a, it's a play off of the word Kremlin, I think. It's like a, Kremlin paint or something like that, uh, MS paint Kremlin, something like that. Um, but roughly ignition started at an altitude of 650 meters and roughly speaking, the flip completed at 350 meters. This is such a last minute maneuver. It's kind of mind boggling and it's fantastic that SpaceX is such a rich heritage of uh, suicide burns, you know, in, in production models, as it were. Yeah, that actually really surprised me because that threw me off because when I saw the engines come on, I couldn't tell the altitude. And then all of a sudden it just landed. And I was like, whoa, that happened like three seconds later. Like, I, I did not expect mm -hmm. that at all. Kind, kind of terrifying, if I'm going to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, and especially the, uh, the downward facing camera. I mean, when, when you already see that, like it, it wasn't landing out in the middle of nowhere. Like there were mm. buildings and structures that it was <laughs> hovering mm. over at the end um, or passing over at the end there. So that was that was kind of scary. But yeah, uh, super successful. Uh, it, it was absolutely fascinating. I haven't had one of these kind of moments of delight from SpaceX in a, in a while. Watching them do crazy, crazy wild things, they, they kind of settled into the boring territory for me for a little bit. And, you know, to be clear, the boring territories is the good territory. We want spaceflight to be boring. But uh, I don't know. I haven't I haven't had SpaceX emotions in a while. <laughs> no, no, I, I, I agree 100 percent because like the, the, the kind of things that we've been watching and seeing and kind of getting jazzed and excited about, like in terms of video clips and demos and things like that, of, you know, all around different spaceflight topics, uh, those as exciting as they are, were nothing like this. Like this was just mm -hmm. so much more dramatic uh, from start to finish, essentially. <laughs> mm hmm. So it kind of just reminded us, at least it reminded me just how wild things can get. It's Definitely. the bright spot 2020 needed. Um, the, yeah. the second half of 2020, we really got to see some very cool things happen. So what's the plan for number nine? I don't remember off the top of my head. Are, are they going to just a higher altitude? I heard somebody say like on uh, somebody, I don't know if they tweeted it or what, but 
at some point I remember someone commenting that, and I could be misremembering this, but that SN9 was going to fly like soon. Yes, um, like this week or something. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was emphasizing. And, and that was even after their, uh, their little leaning tower of Starship. Okay, thanks, Mike. Before it tipped over, Mike says it was supposed to move out to the pad tomorrow, which would be uh, Monday the 14th. So it's very cool to have uh, such an experimental vehicle explode. And to have another one, another handful ready to go right away, mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, Star Hopper, or not, not Star Hopper, uh, not Grasshopper. Uh, what was it, Falcon Nine FT flight flight test or something like that? Watching that guy blow up and scare the cows, we were just like, oh, we don't have another one of those. What, what are they going to do? Uh, call in the chat. Fantastic joke. The question on all our minds is, will it buff out? So let's do three short and sweets. And what's the first one, Dennis? First up, Artemis astronauts announced. NASA has announced their selection of 18 members of the current astronaut corps that will be eligible for future Artemis missions. The astronauts, who will begin flying on Artemis II, are a combination of rookies and veterans, with two of them, Vic Glover and Kate Rubens, currently on the ISS. Selection criteria was not disclosed, but NASA noted that additional astronauts, including those from other space agencies, will be added in the future. Crews have not yet been assigned to particular Artemis missions, but with flight-specific training starting a year and a half before a given mission, there is time before a decision needs to be made. That same week, a report was released outlining Artemis's science goals, with seven broad objectives that encompass planetary science and exploration-related risks to astronauts. And then next up, two small sets selected for 2025 NASA mission. So NASA has also announced the selection of two small set missions that will be launched on board the Interstellar Mapping and Acceleration Probe, or IMAP. The Global Lyman Alpha Imagers of the Dynamic Exosphere, or GLIDE, will focus on the outermost layers of the Earth's atmosphere, while the Solar Cruiser spaceship is a technology mission that will use a solar sail to move from the IMAP's L1 Lagrange Point 2 in orbit closer to the Sun. The solar sail at 1,700 square meters, or 18,000 square feet, will be quite large. The primary payload, which is IMAP, is designed to measure the interstellar boundary near the heliopause using a suite of 10 instruments. It's a good ride share. <laughs> right, and- and finally, Space Riders construction contracts have been awarded. Tala Selenia Spas, Italy, was contracted to build the re-entry module of this intermediate experimental vehicle, IXV, Descendant. And Avio was contracted to build its service and propulsion module. This lifting body reusable cargo vehicle looks much like a wingless dream chaser, but features an enclosed cargo bay and is designed for two months of free flight, much akin to the X-37B. Space Rider features two flipper-like body flaps for aerodynamic control, a parasail for a short runout but definitely horizontal landing, and a slightly tortured acronym hidden in its (laughs) name, Space Reusable Integrated Demonstrator for Europe Return. It is planned to fly on a Vega C in Q3 of 2023. All right. This week in Spaceflight History. So we have uh, four winners, Kyle Foster and the Greek, and then full points to Kristen Lowe and Ben Howler. So the clue was, I get gas when you push me too hard. 
uh, which was, uh, I think, a pretty good clue since we got, you know, just four winners. So I think that was kind of right in the sweet spot there. Um, not too easy, not too hard. So the event was on the 21st of December, 2004. It was the maiden flight of the Delta IV Heavy. And we'll get into the clue later on. But I guess first, let's just talk about Delta IV Heavy itself. Just a couple of quick facts. One thing I, I want to point out is that I think of the Delta IV Heavy as just being the Delta IV Heavy. I don't think of the Delta IV because I don't know if I've ever even, I'm sure I have, but have you ever even seen a launch of a Delta IV Heavy? Or, I'm sorry, a Delta IV, which is actually mm-hmm. called a Delta IV Medium? Mm-hmm. Okay, you have, because I don't think I ever have. I don't I've, know if I've ever watched a launch of it. Yeah, I've since looked it up, but to me, the rocket is supposed to have those boosters. Uh, so, yeah, this is, you know, the Delta IV Heavy, which has a very unique look. It's three cores, which are all the same, and they have each one big engine on the bottom of them. And there's just something about the look of that particular rocket that just is very striking. Um, there's nothing that looks quite like it. Yeah, so a couple of quick facts. Um, it has the third highest lift capacity behind the Falcon Heavy and the Long March 5, and that's the third highest of anything, you know, currently launching. The medium configuration was phased out in 2019, so last year, late last year, I don't what the last mission was. So that's no longer going to be a thing. So now it is just Delta IV Heavy. Uh, but that too will be phased out along with the Atlas V. That's going to be phased out uh, and replaced by Vulcan next year, or at least that is the plan. So the Delta IV means that there had to have been a 1, 2, and 3. The Delta III only launched three times, and two of those launches were failures. So really, it was more of a replacement of uh, the Delta II. I think the Delta III was more like a stopgap type of a rocket. I don't know if that's what it was planned to be, but that's kind of what it ended up being. So the big engines on the bottom of this rocket, which, like I said, just to me look really cool. I don't know why. They're just, I don't know, they're just very interesting. And so it turns out that they actually are quite large. They are the largest liquid hydrogen rocket engines ever flown. Uh, So they're actually larger than the space shuttle main engines, um, which actually surprised me. Uh, They were developed by Aerojet Rocketdyne, and these use a gas generator cycle. So right there, that's a big difference between those and the space shuttle engines, which are stage combustion. But these were meant to actually be relatively low cost, that's part of the reason why you have a gas generator cycle, because that tends to be just much easier, cost much less to develop. These engines, the RS-68s, I don't know if I mentioned the name, by the way. I think I did, right? I don't know if I did. Uh, the RS-60 engines, um, they actually have like 80% fewer parts, hmm. and that lends to the lower cost. But they do have lower ISP at 412 seconds. I think the space shuttle main, main engines are right around 450. Yeah, something like that. I was thinking 440. Probably 440 is more realistic. 450 might be pushing it. But I mean, it, it's crazy to say low. Lower ISP at 412. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, 412 is still cool really sentence. good. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's still very good. Still clearly something you can only get with hydrogen, so you know mm-hmm. that they're Hydrolux engines. But yeah, so again, with the unique look of the rocket, I think it's actually because of the common booster core that you have three cores that all look the same. So you have, you know, that central booster, and then you have two on the side, which are basically duplicates of the first. I think that that's what makes it look so neat. I feel like it set the standard for what a heavy, you mm-hmm. know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. look like, right? I mean, you got the Falcon Heavy and H3, I think, is going to have a heavy configuration, or at least one with multiple oh, okay. H3. Uh, liquid rocket boosters. Yeah, because I'm thinking Falcon Heavy is the only one that really has that common core 
look to it, even though the cores, I guess, are not exactly common, right? I mean, there's some differences because that's part of the reason why they ran into issues, but they're essentially the same. Comparable looking. I suppose there are some structural differences in terms of structural reinforcement for that central core. So these are called the CBCs or the common booster cores, but that's not to be confused with the common core boosters, which were intended for uh, the Atlas V heavy variant, which never came to be. So the Atlas V was actually going to have common cores as well. And I don't know why they changed the name, I guess, just to make the distinction. You know, they just changed the word order, common core booster as opposed to common booster core. That seems needlessly difficult. Like, yeah. like, there's no reason to. Yeah. So you have the CBCs on this rocket, but the Atlas V gets the CCBs, common core booster. So the CBC was developed to replace the Gem 60 solid rocket motors, which can, I guess, no longer be seen, right? Because they're phasing out the Delta medium, or that's actually been done away with already. But these are the much smaller boosters that sit along, you know, uh, that central core. But something you can still see with the Atlas V, I believe that they use Gem 60s, right? The exact same solid rocket motors. So pretty similar. Mm. So anyway, yeah, I guess we can talk about the first mission because that's really what this is all about. So that first mission, its first payload, unsurprisingly, was, you know, just a boilerplate satellite called Demosat. I don't think it really did anything. But it also had a secondary payload, which was something called the Three Corner Satellites, which were meant to be three satellites. It ended up just being two. Um, but these were satellites developed by Arizona State University. They were supposed to have been launched in 2003 aboard the space shuttle, but because of the loss of Columbia, they actually switched to the Delta IV Heavy maiden flight. So these were supposed to be three satellites, but there was one that was meant to be contributed by New Mexico State University, but they weren't able to complete it in time, so they just launched with the two satellites. And uh, mm. these satellites were supposed to take some imaging of cloud formation and also demonstrate um, formation flying. So, you know, supposed to keep their positions relative to one another in the same orbit, but that didn't happen because they never reached orbit. So let's talk about the anomaly, which is at the center of what this you know clue is all about. I get gas when you push me too hard. So this is really interesting, and for some reason, I really I don't know why I like this so much, but I just you know like rocket engines, and I like fun little things like this that have to be figured out. I just feel like it really helps solidify the expertise for building rockets. I don't know if that makes any sense, but it's, you know, it's just these little edge cases that, uh, mm -hmm. you know, are so interesting. It's also something that helps us make a podcast. I mean, like, this is kind of our bread and butter. <laughs> like, this yeah. is the interesting things that we cover. Yeah, I suppose so. I suppose it's because it, it, it is like, you know... Yeah, right down the center lane, like, you know, the kind of stuff that we like to talk about. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, we don't like to talk about failures of rocket launches, but, you know, still, it's um, a I cool like little lesson them. in physics. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this is a cool little engineering lesson here. So basically, the way that the launch profile for the Delta IV Heavy works is you have your T-0 launch, and then at about 50 seconds into the flight, it actually throttles down the central core booster down to 58% of thrust. And that's to conserve fuel in that central core because... Because obviously you want to burn off, you know, the two strap-on boosters first, then jettison those, and then you continue on with that central core. So you have those two strap-on boosters that exhaust their fuel. They shut off at about T plus four minutes in five seconds. Those jettison. The central core throttles back up. And then that continues to orbit before it too shuts down. And then the second stage ignites with uh, the RL-10 upper stage. So that's what's supposed to happen. Basically, T plus 50 seconds... You have the throttle down, and then at T plus four minutes in five seconds, you have the strap-on boosters shut down, and then you you know throttle back up. 
But what happened was both of the side cores plus the central core, and this is at different times, but all three cores actually shut down about eight seconds early. So they weren't able to make the orbit. And the question, you know, is exactly how this happened. And this is like the fun Mm. little engineering thing here. So basically, um, there was an investigation conducted by Boeing and the Air Force. um, And uh, it took about a year, but, you know, they figured it out. And uh, they had a fault tree analysis, which produced 50 possible causes. Maybe that means that they, you know, had teased out 50 possible causes. I don't know exactly how you build a fault tree analysis. I'm sure Ben knows more about that than I do. (laughs) Um, But yeah, they had 50 possible and they were able to eliminate all 49 except for one. So what was the one plausible cause? And this had to do with fluid cavitation in the oxygen O2 feed line for all three boosters. Sorry, sorry real quick. I got a... Uh, That's good. Anderson in the chat uh, says you build a fault tree analysis with fault tree seeds. Yeah. And I think that's yeah. undisputable. Okay. I stand corrected. That's how you do it. So pretty much the conclusion was fluid cavitation in the O2 feed lines on all three boosters. And this was produced or this happened as a result of higher accelerations than the previous Delta IV flights because those did not have, you know, the strap on boosters. And it had to do with the higher propellant flow rate. And this basically caused a drop in pressure, which caused a phase change, which caused the liquid oxygen to turn to gas. So you have to kind of visualize what's going on here. So basically, as you have the O2 feed line coming from the liquid oxygen tank, it has to, I guess, curve around uh, the liquid hydrogen tanks because it has, you know, a runner, I think that's what they're called, um, or like a racetrack that runs down the side of the body. So it obviously does not go through the liquid hydrogen tank or anything like that. Which launch vehicles do have that, where you have it running through the center? Yeah, Falcon 9. Yeah. It's it's not it's not too uncommon. I guess it's just if you have something like liquid hydrogen, you can't do that. Yeah, that's what I was going to say. Is it it's a, a liquid versus gas decision, isn't it? No, I guess, I guess this does use LOX or a, a li- liquid hydrogen, but is it... Well, I think it's just because of the... Both because of the temperature difference, plus I think that liquid hydrogen tanks need to be built a little bit more sturdily. I mean, there's just, you know, higher tolerances that you need to... That you have because of the higher pressure, which can often occur, I guess, is, you know, hydrogen boil off. I'm not sure about that, but it, it doesn't seem like you'd want, you would want to run a channel through a liquid hydrogen tank. At least that's just my intuition. That seems dangerous to me. So if you imagine the feed line coming from that LOX tank, it has to curve around the liquid hydrogen tank. So it almost kind of, so you have like, you know, a little elbow and then it um, moves almost horizontally with respect to the line of thrust. And then it curves mm-hmm. back downward heading towards uh, the engines. I mean, that that lateral portion of the pipe is, I mean, it's maybe at like a, a 15 degree slope. It's, it's really, yeah. it's really yeah. close to being horizontal. Yeah. And so that little elbow there in the curve there, that's kind of part of what caused this problem. The other issues were the higher G loads, as well as a drop off in the pressure in the liquid oxygen tank or a suboptimal pressure in uh, the liquid oxygen tank, which at the time they, you know, again, thought was the correct amount because they hadn't had these issues before. Basically, they um, have... A certain pressure on the pad. And then as they go through flight, they actually allow the pressure in the tank to drop. And that, like you said, that was what they, they thought was the right way to do it. But, um, it, it's kind of interesting that like they literally, they wanted the pressure to drop and that's how they designed it. So yeah, it dropped a little bit too much that combined with the higher G loads. And I guess this just really comes down to if you imagine, you know, the liquid being pressed down towards, you know, the bottom portion of that pipe. 
Plus, it's coming around that little bend there, which I guess causes not turbulence, but yeah, it's it's flow separation. Work. Yeah, and exactly. You you've got it exactly right. I feel like Bernoulli's principle comes somewhere in here. You know, like you have higher pressure mm-hmm. towards you know the outside of the bend, and like lower yeah, pressure towards right. the inside of the bend. Yeah, no, I'll, I'll bet you're right because I mean it's it's kind of like um, people running. Th- if you got a bunch of people running through a hallway, or I guess race cars going around a curve on the track. Everybody gets slammed to the outside just due to centripetal motion. So what happened was they had a little pocket of liquid oxygen turning into gas, and it sort of started at the elbow, closer to that point. But that little gaseous pocket grew, or I guess we can call it a cavitation bubble, which actually is the correct term, so you can call it that too. Because I remember last week we were talking about, is it considered yeah. a cavitation if it's you know filled with gas? But I looked it up, and apparently it is. So you can you know still call it that if you want. Well, I mean, any, any cavitation bubble, even like... Like in water, I'm assuming that there's going to be some amount of water vapor. Like it's not going to be a perfect vacuum because water just will boil off into it. Yeah. So that little cavitation bubble started to extend down the pipe as the pressure dropped and the G loads increased. And actually along this section of pipe, you have a couple of sensors. And these sensors, once they detect a dry state, that's the signal to shut off the engine. And so you can see exactly what happened here. And once that happens, they cannot be restarted, obviously. So that dry signal is what tripped uh, the software to shut down the engines. And what's crazy about those sensors, there are two of them. Is it two or four? I think it's just two, and they're both on either side of of the pipe. Yeah, yeah. They're they're spaced like 90 degrees apart from each other, but Mm -hmm. they are on the top half of the pipe. Right. Um, And so... You know, that bubble probably, as it extended downward, it probably stayed at the top of the pipe between those two sensors. And the bubble had to not only um, uh, propagate down the pipe, but also grow large enough in volume so that it came down it and tripped those guys. Anderson's saying that there may be more like 30 degrees. Yeah, I I think you're probably right. But I mean, you know, they're they're spaced a good ways apart, presumably for redundancy. But the fact that they were at the top of the pipe allowed them to to be hit by this bubble. And, you know, they're probably at the top of the pipe by design because you you are going to have lower pressures uh, at the top and higher pressures at the bottom. I'm assuming uh, that it'd be a big enough pressure differential to to make a difference here. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, you can you can imagine uh, a pipe with these two sensors up at the top, kind of like um, uh, they wouldn't be Leia buns, but they would <laughs> be like a Leia, like, uh, Leia buns. <laughs> yeah, but but maybe like Shrek ears uh, sticking mm-hmm. up at the top, <laughs> and you can imagine this bubble coming down and and threading the needle between the two of them before it it tripped them off. Mm-hmm. And since you mentioned that this is not the corrective action that they made, but one corrective action could be to just put those sensors on, you know, the bottom of the pipe. Yeah, and you you would have to to update all of your flight rules to to account for the different way that you're collecting data, I would assume. Yeah. So what they did do in order to correct this was they basically just made some modifications to the software to actually increase tank pressure as it ascended. So that instruction is to have a pressure relief valve, you know, bleed off some of that pressure. That valve itself was also replaced with a higher relief pressure valve. So one that just, you know, had a higher tolerance 
for pressure before it started to trip. The other big thing is they actually modified the software to basically just have sort of like a little blackout time during which it does not accept the dry signal. Again, that's, you know, just a beautiful little bit of code you can stick in there and say, hey, do not accept this as a valid dry signal yet because we're still at, you know, whatever T plus four minutes into flight. And so that basically corrected the problem and they haven't had any problems since. And what's interesting is they didn't, uh, they didn't apply these corrections to the second flight because they determined that it was going to be flying a, a lower uh, acceleration flight profile. And they're like, yeah, we don't, we're fine on that one. But after that, we'll institute these. So that was the maiden launch of the Delta IV Heavy. So next week on the 22nd through the 28th of December, uh, what is the clue for that, Ben? Yeah, next week is in 2003. The clue is 11 years and 5 kilometers. 2003, 11 years and 5 kilometers. I have no idea what that means, but if someone out there thinks they know, give us a tweet with the hashtag this week SF and good luck. All right, so let's do a couple of upcoming spaceflight events, three launches, and a couple of other things. Yeah, we love our other things. Okay, mm -hmm. so first we have a PSLV XL launch. Um, this is flying CMS-01, also known as GSAT-12R. Uh, it's a telecommunication satellite. I think we've talked about a couple of GSATs uh, in the past. And that is launching at 0911 hours UTC out of Satish Dhawan Space Center in Sriharikota, India. After that, on the same day, on December 17th, is a Falcon 9 launching uh, a national reconnaissance payload. Uh, and this is the Enrol 108 satellite. So it's classified. We don't know what that is. You know how that goes. Um, so the launch window for that is uh, between 1400 and 1700. UTC. That's launching from Launch Complex 39A at Kennedy Space Center, as usual. And it's an RTLS landing as well. Oh, and it's an RTLS. That's yeah. cool. Yeah, we haven't seen one of those in a while. And, and what's funny is um, uh, Spaceflight Now says that it's landing at Cape Canaveral Air Force Station, uh, which I just read in the news this morning is soon going to become Cape Canaveral Space Force Station. Oh, yeah, that's coming which up. Which mm. I, I don't know if I'm okay with. I mean, it's Space, space Force is just so silly. Like the the name itself is kind of that television show didn't do it any favors. I exactly. didn't really like that. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> All right. Uh, then our third launch of the week is a Soyuz two one B. It is flying uh, one Web four on top of a Frigate M upper stage. Um, one Web four is the mission designator. It's not the vehicle designator because there are actually thirty six uh, vehicles. Um, uh, of course, OneWeb is uh, the low Earth orbit internet um, constellation uh, that's competing with uh, all, all of the, I guess, all of the yeah. other Leo uh, <laughs> internet constellations. Um, this launch is currently planned uh, to to start at twelve twenty six hours UTC. Uh, that's uh, seven thirty a.m. Eastern time. And so that's flying out of uh, Vostochny uh, Cosmodrome in Russia. And I feel like we haven't seen a Vostochny uh, launch in a little bit. And then we also have a couple uh, non-launch events coming up. Um, if we go back in time before any of the launches on December 16th, uh, keep an eye out for uh, Chang'e 5 sample return making it back to Earth, uh, Inner Mongolia in particular. So um, right, the Chang'e Five mission touched down uh, on the moon on December first, so it, and uh, took off. Uh, the ascent stage took off a couple days later, and so it's basically just kind of been waiting um, now for its optimal uh, return trajectory. And so, uh, yeah, again, that'll be uh, on the 16th of uh, 
uh, December. And then um, maybe a couple hours after the uh, the Falcon 9 Enroll launch uh, uh, on December 17th at 3 p.m. Uh, Eastern, uh, keep an eye out for, uh, well, NASA is basically going to be running on NASA TV a, uh, a fun little um, you know session called uh, How to See Saturn and Jupiter's Great Conjunction. So um, basically, if you want to, you know, they might have some... Uh, some tips and hints for how to best watch uh, this uh, conjunction, right, where Saturn and Jupiter have been drifting closer and closer to each other on the sky. And on uh, December 21st is when they will have their kind of closest approach and be in what's called an astronomical conjunction. So uh, pretty cool stuff. Uh, I'm sure they'll be able to kind of give you some good hints and tips for how to optimize your viewing. Uh, should be something else, though, to see. Is the 21st uh, actually the day of the solstice? Could be. It's in that range. Um, oh, yeah. No, it is. It is. Uh yeah, the the twenty first is the solstice. How about so, that? So <laughs> yeah, uh, uh, one in four hundred years level conjunction on the solstice is pretty darn good. Alrighty, those are your upcoming space flight events. Cool. All right, and with that, let's deal with the show. And we would like to thank Ronald Jenkins and Tim Dodd for our music. We record live on Sundays at nine a.m. Pacific, twelve p.m. Eastern. Thank you so much to our $5 up Patreon supporters for joining our recording sessions and helping us make correction burns on the fly. If you want to support the show as well, please leave us a review wherever you listen or visit theorbitalmechanics.com support for our Patreon campaign, affiliate links, and other resources. For more information on this episode, such as show notes and other links, visit our website at theorbitalmechanics.com. Be sure to check out our store for mission patches, t-shirts, and hoodies. You can join our Discord for free during social distancing. Check our Twitter or Reddit for links. We're Orbital Podcast on both, and you can talk directly to us by emailing info at theorbitalmechanics.com. All right, so that's it. We will see you next week on Orbit. Until then, later. Goodbye, everybody. See you.